0: Hello and welcome to the Drug
1: Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A very warm welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, Joe Neal and Hannah Thurger. And today we have a very special guest and a very warm welcome to Charles Nichols. Charles is a professor of pharmacology and that's really nice for me because I'm a pharmacologist and there aren't all that many of us around I find yeah um we met for the first time in London last summer at the BAP annual meeting that's the British Association for Psychopharmacology so I'm going to do a quick plug here best psychopharm organization where science meets practice and folks he did the most fantastic talk on inflammation and psychedelics and 5-HT2A receptor agonists and mechanisms and all about the work and that's or the work in his lab and that's kind of going to be one of the the things we'd like to talk about in the podcast today and there was standing room only at that session it's brilliant. Charles works in New Orleans he's in the department of pharmacology and experimental therapeutics and he's been there for 20 years And his research centers on the pharmacology of the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor, which is a very interesting receptor. So he's been working on this with his lab. He runs a big lab now. And actually, I'm speaking to him. He's in the office that's attached to his lab, which is always the best place to be. Actually, you're the boss of the lab. So you can you can very it's a very hands on place to be. It's great but particular focus on the anti-inflammatory effects of psychedelics, which, of course, is particularly exciting for novel therapeutics, for lots of very hard-to-treat disorders where inflammation kind of is at the core of the pathology. Something that the more observant of you'll probably have noticed is his name. His father is David Nichols, godfather of psychedelics, a bit like our very own David Nutt. And he has already been on the Drug Science Podcast. So I think this is potentially the first time we've had a father and son on a podcast series. But folks, listeners, if I'm wrong, and that there are other father and son or father-daughter, mother-daughter combinations, that'd be interesting to hear of that. Anyway, a very warm welcome, Charles.
0: Thank you, Joe. Thank you.
1: It's so great to see you again.
0: Thank you for the invitation to BAP. It was a fantastic meeting. A lot of really good science. It was amazing. And thank you for inviting me to the podcast.
1: Well, it's so cool to see you again. It's just lovely. Brilliant. So, Charles, I thought you might want to start by telling us about sort of your early career or maybe even your childhood. We might want to go back uh, <laughs> that early. And, you know, your PhD and then your postdoc and kind of how that led you to to running the lab where you are now?
0: Yeah, well, I think a lot of people think that I got into the field of psychedelics and serotonin neuropharmacology because that's what my father's done his whole career. But that's that's completely wrong. I had no intention of it. When I was little, I remember, well, my parents are very young when I was born. My mother had just turned 20 and my father, I think he was 22 and when I was two, we moved to Iowa City, University of Iowa, where my father did his PhD in medicinal chemistry. And I remember when I was four or five years old, sometimes he would take me into the lab. And I didn't quite know what a chemistry lab was at that point. But, oh, that was fun. I'm going into going into a laboratory. And my, my mother was getting her undergraduate degree in psychology and was doing some rodent behavioral things. And so she would take me to watch the, the rats doing the, uh, with the foot shock assays. And you wouldn't be able to do those today with all the regulations, but I thought that was really neat. So I was enamored with science early on. And then when I went to college at Purdue, I started off as a chemistry major. And thought, oh, I'll be a, I'll be a chemist, and that, that was interesting.
1: So you did follow, start to follow your dad's footsteps <laughs>
0: as a chemist. <laughs> yeah. But then after a couple of years, just all the math that it was involved, and it wasn't really living up to the glamour that I had, I had expected it to. So I had switched my before my third year of college to the biochemistry biology program at Purdue University and kept continuing on with some of the more advanced chemistry classes, but then also started in the biology and biochemistry and started doing research in a laboratory with bacteria phosphate utilization, so in microbiology, And this was in the mid-1980s, and the PCR machine had just been invented, and Purdue had one PCR machine that was in the building across campus. And I remember at the time, we were amplifying genes, and I was really into molecular biology and genetics at that time point. It seemed very exciting. So I wanted to go into uh, some aspect of molecular biology and genetics and I was I was working in bacteria at that time I had friends who were working with yeast genetics so that's really what I was kind of looking to do and so I interviewed for graduate school at several schools and my graduate mentor for my undergraduate research said he had just come from a meeting at Carnegie Mellon University thought that was an interesting place. They were doing a lot of really neat molecular biology genetics there. I'd never heard of that university before, but they had a free application to apply. So I applied, went out there and it was just, just amazed. And later did I find out it was one of the premier institutions in the country for that, but had no idea what I wanted to do other than something to do with biology genetics. And it was during the first several weeks we had uh, this retreat where all the faculty talked about what they did uh, to the students. And, you know, this person was working on yeast genetics. This person was looking at sea urchin genetics and somebody else looking at, at mice. And one investigator started showing these beautiful fluorescent microscopy images of neural circuitry in a flute, in a fruit fly brain. And that just really captured me. That's what, that's beautiful.
1: That's I, not a big brain, is, is it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but the visualization of the neural circuits at that time was just, just uh, really grabbed me. So I, I joined that laboratory and did my PhD thesis work on the development of the fruit fly retina, I'm studying a particular gene called lozenge, and really doing sort of hardcore genetics. But we were also doing imaging microscopy. So that was interesting. I got a, a very sound education in neurodevelopmental genetics.
1: Maybe the listeners might be interested to know about the development of the fruit fly because it's very fast life cycle. Isn't oh, it? Yeah. yeah.
0: Right. You would go from a fertilized egg to a fully functioning, reproducing adult in about 10 days.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant. Somewhere and
0: yeah. the brain of the fly has over 100,000 neurons. There's serotonin, dopamine, histamine. Denosine, uh, several, several conserved circuits and, and functions.
1: So Charles, are they a reasonably good model for human physiology then?
0: They can be. There, there are models in the fruit flies ranging from Alzheimer's to ALS to diabetes, even to heart disease. You can do the equivalent of echocardiograms on the fly heart. And if you feed a fly a high-fat, high cholesterol diet, it gets heart disease and diabetes. So it's it's a really powerful organism.
1: Yeah. And of course, it was a very exciting time to be working on genetics. You know, it sounds like you had a lot of technology at your disposal.
0: Right, right. Um, The lab next door was the laboratory that developed like the Psi 3 Psi 5 fluorophores. And it was a NSF center designated for light microscopy. So they developed a lot of the technology that would become to be known as confocal microscopy in the future. So we had, we could play with those. So it was, it was an interesting, interesting place, interesting education. But after several years of working with flies, I just kind of got burnt out on flies and wanted to switch to mammals and was looking for a postdoc in mammalian pharmacology. And I had found one that was in Parkinson's, looking at Parkinson's. I thought, all right, that's interesting enough. And it was, it was one afternoon. I was waiting uh, for my ride to come pick me up and they were late. And I have a, had a tendency to spin around in my, my chair when I was bored to sort of, you know, think. And my eyes came to rest on a desk behind me of my coworker that was a journal that had an advertisement for a cluster hire at Vanderbilt University on the back of it and I was looking at the names oh Vanderbilt that's a nice school and neurobiology and there was a name there Elaine Sanders Bush that I had recognized that my father had spoken highly of her in the past they had done some collaborations and said that she was looking for somebody and doing serotonin neuropharmacology I'm
1: like huh oh
0: that sounds interesting
1: Charles when I was doing my PhD on serotonin pharmacology I remember reading her papers
0: (laughs) So I, I really didn't have an appreciation for who she was at that time point. I just knew that my father had spoken highly of her. And I thought, huh, mammalian neuropharmacology. Okay. So I sent her an email. I saw her her advertisement. And she wrote back to me almost immediately saying that, oh, that was a mistake. She huh. told them not to put her name there. She didn't have any money. She wasn't recruiting for a postdoc and apologized. Huh. All right. So I proceeded, uh, wrote up my dissertation Accepted the postdoc in a Parkinson's lab and was set on going that direction. And then I got an email a couple months later from Elaine. She's saying, well, you know, if you're still interested, I now have money and a project. Could you come out and interview next week?
1: Gosh, amazing.
0: So like, wow. Well, okay. <laughs> so flew out to Vanderbilt the next week and uh, met the lab. Met Elaine. She was a, a really amazing, fantastic person.
1: Uh, you know, I've never met her, Charles. I'd love to have met her. And um, was she a really good mentor?
0: Yes. Yeah. She was from central Kentucky, maybe five foot high in a good day, fire red hair, and a personality to match, and a very good mentor. And she it turns out had just completed a sabbatical in Brian Kabilka's lab and saw the Sort of the future of molecular biology and genetics, and was looking to recruit somebody to her laboratory to sort of bring that technology into her lab um, to really sort of modernize it into, into the modern growing field of molecular pharmacology. And so the project that she proposed was using a technique that was developed at Vanderbilt that sort of fell by the wayside called differential display PCR to look at the effects of LSD on gene expression in the frontal cortex of a rat brain
1: i mean why was she so interested in lsd was it as a tool as a select an agonist or or what was her interest in it
0: i guess as a model of psychosis oh, and, yeah. and schizophrenia at that time they were doing a lot of studies primarily on the 5ht2c receptor but some with the 5ht2a receptor and they had some early what's now called functional selectivity evidence that LSD and serotonin were producing different effects at the 5-HT2C receptor. So they, she offered me this project. I really liked everybody in the lab. I got a good sense there, and I accepted that postdoc, and I backed out of the other one. And so then defended, and I remember when I was giving my, my postdoc talk, some people in the audience in her lab fell asleep, <laughs> kind of looked like Elaine was not really paying much attention and I'm like, all right, I'm I'm just bombing this. You know, mm. I'm I'm showing I'm showing slides of fruit fly eyes and northern blots and genetic crosses and here this is a, a, a mammalian neuropharmacology lab and there's no match. Like, all right, I just this is not gonna happen. But at the end of the day she said it was great. She made me an offer, I accepted it, and I'm really glad I did because I think it was the right choice and the right fit started learning mammalian neuropharmacology and couldn't couldn't learn serotonin from anybody better than Elaine. Mm. And I was in the lab for about a month. I think it was about maybe one or two months. And I remember this very vividly. I was standing outside her office where a bookshelf was and talking to one of the other postdocs. And she came out of her office with this kind of quizzical look on her face. And she had my CV and she said, I'm looking at your CV. She has a very pronounced Southern Kentucky accent. Oh, wow. So I was looking at your CV and, you know, I, I just noticed again that you were at Purdue. And she said, do you know Dave Nichols, who's at Purdue? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's my father. <laughs> so she just was like,
1: ah. Had she worked with your father?
0: She had done some pharmacological testing of some of his compounds before he had really established his own. Pharmacology setup at Purdue.
2: And Charles, and um, when did you first collaborate then with your dad? What was your first project you worked on together?
0: Oh, so that was towards the end of my time at Vanderbilt. My father and his team had discovered that repeated low dose LSD to rats induces abnormal persistent behaviors. And so we had at that time done microarray screens on the effects of LSD and, and I think psilocybin in rat brains, I've never published on the psilocybin, but we had uh, really gone in on, on the LSD side of things and thought, well, let's let's now compare the brains of these rats that are chronically treated that are abnormal to the rats that aren't chronically treated like at the, at the acute and the baseline state. So we've got some of those tissues did some preliminary gene expression. And that's about the time that I came to, I was recruited to LSU. So we started collaborating at that level on that project. Um, as I was transitioning out of Vanderbilt and then I lost all the samples, oh. um, that we had generated in hurricane Katrina oh. lost, <sighs> Hundreds, hundreds of dissected brain samples, RNA samples, dose response, time course from different psychedelics, along with everything else. But then we sort of got that project going again. And ultimately, that was published, I think, around 2015, Wow! uh, the results of that study.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's something you don't really consider an event like that, the effect on research.
0: Oh yeah, imagine that you're a young assistant professor, you've been somewhere almost about a year, you're just getting going, you're starting mm-hmm. to get grants in, you've hired a few people, you have a student in the lab, and then your building in your university just essentially blows away.
1: was it? it was all like, How do like, you, all the, the, How do you
0: recover from that? Oh. Yeah, like the the building was still here.
1: Yeah.
0: But Everybody's all, all you know. The animals all died. Uh, free- freezers all all went dead. When they let us back in the building several months later, we had to wear the double respirator masks with flashlights with an armed escorts.
2: And how did you build your research back up after that?
0: It was not easy. I went to first Houston for a couple of weeks, just in the immediate aftermath of the situation, and then I went up back to West Lafayette, Indiana, and stayed in my father's spare bedroom for essentially the next seven months. And they gave me sort of a visiting adjunct professor uh, position at Purdue that allowed me to work there. So I got an appointment within the pharmacology department, temporary at Purdue, was able to try to resuscitate some of my research there. And then I went over to the biology department where i had graduated from and there was a very very well-known drosophila researcher there don Reddy. i went down and introduced myself to him and he was very gracious opened up his laboratory so i was able to get started on re-establishing some of my drosophila strains again in don's lab and was able to submit an r21 award while I, a grant that was ultimately awarded from there and then when we came back it was it was still very difficult the infrastructure was basically gone but i think because at that time i had started using fruit flies again i was able to do things much faster than if i had been working with mm. with mammals
1: because you don't need an animal facility do you for
0: Drosophia? no no so um i focused the next the next uh, couple years while they were rebuilding the infrastructure here at lsu on on my fruit fly research uh-huh.
1: Actually that was fortunate for you you were able to do that I guess. And, and and yeah. So do they have the serotonin system the same the 2A receptor and
0: Yeah, I I had no clue about that because when I was in Elaine's lab, you know we were giving LSD to rats and I was looking at them and there were a couple of fly labs in the pharmacology department there that were looking at some synaptic structure related proteins. But it was during that time point, there was a paper that came out from Jay Hirsch and Colleen McClung where they had done a screen looking at genes that were responsible or responding to uh, stimulants like cocaine and methamphetamine and saw that uh, circadian rhythm genes in the fly were responsible for the behavioral sensitization of something like cocaine and amphetamines. And then they revalid, they validated those in mammalian models. So I got, oh my gosh, you could do behavioral pharmacology in fruit flies. Amazing. <laughs> so I got really excited. I went into Elaine's office and, and I pitched this idea to her. I asked her, you know, it had been probably three and a half years since I had done anything with flies. But I'm like, you know, I want to give LSD to fruit flies and see what happens. And I looked in the literature and, and there were, Three, or there were four fruit fly serotonin receptors that were cloned, but nothing was really known about them aside from the embryonic expression of one of them that Luke Merito had, had done in the late 1980s. So she was like, Yeah, go ahead, do it. So, I'm like, all right, how can we feed the drug to the flies? So ultimately, I ended up getting, I tell people, I got little blotter papers, <laughs> made a sucrose solution with LSD, and I went down to get the, the wild type flies that that I was used to using and she said, "Oh, we just rotated that stock. We don't have any of those, but we do have these wide-eyed flies that you can use." It's like, "Oh, it's not ideal, but they're close enough to wild type." So, trying to get the I starved the flies overnight and then tried to get them to land on this blotter paper that had LSD and sucrose solution and they kept flying away. <sighs> So I ended up cutting their wings off. Oh. And then put them on there. Yeah. And then they I would look watch them under a microscope and they would eat. And after about five to ten minutes, they started having coordination problems. Okay. And they lost their flight response. Like if you poke a fly, they'll jump away and fly. Or if you try to catch one, they'll they stop doing that. So you could grab one. And then it would almost very slowly kind of fall over and you could prop it up. It would slowly fall over again. So I'm like, oh, there's there's like this, there's a behavioral. Yeah. Thing. So it, there must be, you know, the functional 5-HT1, 5-HT2. So then I went and I got the red-eyed flies that I wanted to get. in the first when they came available. And I did the same thing and there was no effect.
1: Oh, isn't that interesting. So what was going on?
0: So what I think was, is the, the white gene that's responsible for the red eyes and flies encodes the tryptophan transporter so these flies were deficient in tryptophan which is the biosynthetic precursor of serotonin so hypothesized that they had a deficit of serotonin and a compensatory upregulation of serotonin receptors
1: ah uh uh-huh because i remember giving lsd to rats and nothing happening really no really, nothing very disappointed but that so that's that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I
0: yeah. think if, if she had had the red-eyed flies to begin with, yeah. I would have done that experiment, and no effect, no. that would have been it. So when, when I found the effect with the wide-eyed flies, then I started looking at some functions, and we looked at visual processing and acuity in the flies, and what we'll used this stripe-following assay, and showed that I could block the effects of LSD to disrupt that in the red-eyed flies, using a 5-HT1A antagonist and a 5-HT2 receptor antagonist. And so that was one of my first papers out of Elaine's lab, was looking at the effects of LSD and fruit flies on the visual processing systems. And so then I developed the genetic tools to fluorescently tag the receptor circuits for the 5-HT2A receptor, the 5-HT1A receptor, the 5-HT7 receptor, 5-HT1B receptor, had already been characterized by a lab at UPenn. But with all those markers and being able to visualize the circuits, then after Katrina and then getting set up, working with the flies, we're able to establish several behavioral models looking at aggression, learning and memory, social interactions, uh, courtship and mating, and to find a role for each of the serotonin receptors uh, within those processes.
1: Very, very cool. And so...
0: I've stayed in flies although I've I'm, I'm not as act, nearly as active now as as I used to be.
1: So you still do research with Drosophila?
0: Yeah, we just had a paper last year the long-lasting antidepressant-like effects of psilocybin in fruit flies.
1: And how do you measure depression in a fruit fly?
0: We use the forced swim test.
1: <laughs> they swim
0: <laughs> just like you would in a rodent. Yeah. So we found a, a strain of fly that had abnormally low imm- or locomotor activity, and found that when we when we fed it, well, we put them in the in the force in, in these little water chambers, like a four well chamber slide with a little bit of SDS to break the surface tension, and they try to swim, and we measured that, measured their immobility, and we compared a wild type fly. And then an isolate of a wild-type fly that, didn't, that had a reduced mobility in that assay, when we fed those flies citalopram chronically, it rescued them back to baseline levels for their mobility. When we fed them citalopram just one day, it didn't have any effect. But if we fed them psilocybin for just one day and looked a week later, they were back to normal in the four swim test. So oh, we, we don't cool. we don't know what the neural circuitry is but we we know that psychedelics in some unpublished studies increase glutamatergic synaptic yeah. density in certain brain regions of the of the fly brain. So we think some similar mechanisms are are occurring and conserved between flies and people.
1: So Charles, I mean does that effect last then like it seems to in people does it did it last
0: well a week for a fly is pretty long. Yeah, we didn't test beyond beyond a week, but the per, the, the effect was was persistent. We're
1: still there, you didn't have to redose. That's cool. great. Right. That's
2: really cool. And have you tested it with different psychedelics? We've just
0: done it in the flies with psilocybin.
1: Now, moving on to inflammation, and Hannah and I are particularly interested, and in, you know Hannah having done her PhD in this area, could you do that work in a fly? The anti-inflammatory effects
0: of, oh yeah, and we have a project in the lab right now looking at neuroinflammation in the fly, where there are the correlates of pro-inflammatory cytokines that we can measure. So we have a model where we're inducing a neurological injury, and in, in, that's reflected in this increase in these the peptides. But they basically form the perform the same function in those are increased. And so we've done some pilot experiments now with uh, DOI. Now we're looking at psilocybin. And in one of those experiments, when we had fed the flies DOI prior to performing the neurological trauma, that it blocked the expression of these pro-inflammatory fly cytokines. So we're, we're just embarking on a larger project to expand on that now.
1: I think the listeners might want to know what DOI is and how it relates to psilocybin.
0: So DOI is a phenethylamine that it's more related in structure to mescaline and amphetamines. And it is highly selective for 5-HT2 receptors. There's very little off-target affected other receptors. And some receptor binding studies in fruit flies have actually shown that DOI is fairly selective for 5-HT2 receptors and flies as well.
2: So Charles, it might be helpful for the listeners to have listen a bit more of a background on how you got into 5-HT2A receptor and inflammation, because classically when people think of the 5-HT2A receptor, they think of the brain and serotonin signaling in the brain. Right. It's a bit of background about where the receptor is expressed throughout the body
0: yeah, so I was I was under the same impression, you know, psychedelics they act at 5HT2A receptors, they're expressed in the brain. Unbeknownst to me, they were also expressed in just about every other tissue throughout the body. They're the most widely expressed serotonin 2A receptor. They're in immune cells, bone cells, epithelial, endothelial, muscle, just about every adipocyte tissue, every tissue that we've looked at, we've been able to detect at least message for 5HT2A receptors. And so the other, the other half of, of my research when I, when I came to LSU was continuing on the studies of examining examining gene expression in response to psychedelics in the medial prefrontal cortex as a, as a model for psychiatric uh, disease. And the problem with that is you have to give the drug to an animal and take the brain out, which is very cumbersome, you know, regulatory issues. So we were trying to identify some kind of cell-based model that we could activate the receptors and get relevant gene expression responses. And there had been some papers of looking looking at psychedelics in transfected HEK cells um, just at baseline. But we were, we were trying to look at the effect, some, some outcome measure that psychedelics would alter that may have some relevance to psychiatric disorders. So we looked at several different cell types with several different psychedelics, looking at things like cell growth, cell death cell migration some of these types of things and it was largely again due to hurricane katrina that we made that discovery because uh, after the hurricane about half of our faculty left and i didn't have a postdoc at the time and had just started to look for a postdoc and was contacted by somebody Ning you who was in the physiology department And his mentor was leaving, and he was looking at inflammatory models of atherosclerosis, specifically the rat aortic smooth muscle cell model and some of the factors in that. And he had done his MD-PhD in Hunan, China, and his PhD dissertation research was on hypertension in populations of 5-HT2A receptor polymorphic individuals. So he was familiar with the role of 5-HT2A receptors in cardiovascular function at, at some level. So he had saw on the webpage that I was using 5-HT2A receptors. Oh, he his, his wife had, had was in nursing school. He had a young child. He didn't want to relocate. Had an excellent background. So was, sure, join the lab. So as we were doing these cell experiments, he wanted to fold in this anti-inflammatory assay using rat aortic smooth muscle cells and tnf-alpha and i thought anti-inflammatory that's crazy but i said go for it and also at the time we had a cell culture center that my wife at the time was the manager of and she was making this particular type of cell on a regular basis that otherwise would have been prohibitively expensive me. As a a young startup, I can't afford primary cells. So I had unlimited access to uh, primary rat aortic smooth muscle cells, endothelial cells. We set the assay up and then Bang Ning brought me the results. And I had taken it down to 0.1 nanomolar, being basically the zero dose, thinking that we'd see a dose response if anything was there. And it was a full effect. Like that's odd, you know, and he was adamant that he didn't make any dilution errors. So I'm like, okay, let's assume that this is real and not a dilution error. Let's back it down to 0.1 picomolar on the dose response.
1: Homeopathic doses, Charles.
0: <laughs> yes. So he did that. And then a couple of days later, brought the results. And this beautiful dose response curve with a, about a 15 picomolar IC50 to block the effects of TNF alpha against IL6 production. So I'm like that's really bizarre. So then I said let me do it. So then I went in the lab, completely brought up some new cells, drug dilutions, exact same could could overlap those two curves and at that point I knew we were onto something. So then we we started looking at you know is it the 5HT2A B or C. We used antagonists. We looked at a couple of different cell types to see if it was specific for smooth muscle cells. And that resulted in a JPET paper in 2008, kind of describing the anti-inflammatory effects of psychedelics. So it was kind of a curiosity at that point. And I was not anybody having anything to do with inflammation at that time point. I, I didn't know anything. I was a developmental neurobiologist, geneticist, pharmacologist, gpcr but i didn't know anything about immunology so we thought okay the next logical step let's just do it in a whole animal see if we can translate it to an animal so we we took normal mice tnf alpha pre-treated with doi and saw saw that we had very potent protective anti-inflammatory effects in the whole animal so at that point i was like oh wow this is this is really amazing
1: so had that not been observed at all before?
0: No, no. Uh-huh. So it's like, where do we go next? What kind of, you know, let's go to a disease model. So I was fortunate enough at the time that my next door neighbor in the lab suite was a, a very well-known and respected person in the field of asthma, Dr. Stefania Cormier, who specializes like in, in RSV and particulate-induced inflammation in neonatal asthma lungs, And she was willing to test DOI in one of her cohorts and had some amazing results. Oh my God, you know, it, it like prevented completely all the inflammation at that dose they used. So that's kind of when I dug in and started to hone in on asthma as the primary platform that we used and learned about the inflammation associated with asthma and built that whole story out in a publication in 2015 in collaboration with with Dr. Cormier, where we looked at the effect on T cells, on the prevention of recruitment of eosinophils to the BALF, airways hyperresponsiveness, And based on those results, I was very fortunate enough to get a grant from the American Asthma Foundation that allowed me to continue to develop that for the next few years.
1: Isn't it funny, Charles, how you end up working on, you know, a disease like that as a neuropharmacologist? It's funny how how things work. And the model seems very robust. I mean, you publish on it a lot now, don't you?
0: Yeah. And it's really robust. And I like it because it's not just looking at one single aspect of immunity. That in asthma, to get the pulmonary inflammation and to get that difficulty breathing, you have these complex interactions between the Th1 system with T cells, dendritic cells, Th1, uh, macrophages. You have non hematopoietic cells, endothelial cells, smooth muscle cells. They all have to have some inflammatory response that produces this hyper, airways hyper responsiveness and this inflammation. So we can really probe different aspects of the immune system just in that one model so that's kind of why we've stuck with asthma and we've made i think we've made a lot of discoveries using that as a platform and along the way we've looked at i got a small pilot grant for cardiovascular disease so we've looked at vascular inflammation and diabetes at one of the internal presentations that i gave here there was a, an investigator in another department who I knew, but I had never really interacted with. And he came up afterwards and said, Oh, some of these biomarkers that you're looking at are exactly what this disease I'm, I'm involved in is defective in. So can, can I try some of your drug in my model? And like, sure, sure. So uh, this is Dr. Tim Foster and his model, he was looking at postherpatic keratitis, which is one of the leading causes of blindness where it's reactivation of herpes virus from the trigeminal neuron. And it leads to an immune response in the eye. And even after the virus goes away, it's this unchecked immune response that then leads to scarring, neovascularization, and blindness. So the DOI that he topically put in that model performed better than the standard of care that was the control.
1: I mean, there's there's a discovery.
2: And so topically is that straight into the eye and just one time or multiple times
0: as like an an eye drop so he's developed developed a lot of since then he's now become kind of my my partner in crime on the inflammation side of things because he's very knowledgeable on the immune system and inflammation and we really complement each other um so i've taught him a lot of serotonin receptor pharmacology and he's taught me a lot of immunology about things so we've had uh, publications together, and it's it's been a really good good working team.
1: So DOI, does this, you know, the other psychedelics, the ones that the listeners will be much more familiar with, you know, psilocybin, DMT, LSD, and we've talked a little bit about LSD, but psilocybin, I suppose most of the trials, lots of the trials now are working on, on psilocybin. So does does it have the same and DMT? Do they have the same anti-inflammatory potency and effects?
0: No, they do not. Huh. So we screened 25 different psychedelics that represented the phenethylamines like DOI and the tryptamines that include psilocybin and DMT and 5 DMT and ergolines that in- include LSD, uh, and we also measured their signaling at calcium GQ and beta-arrestin for the same cohort. What we found was that the anti-inflammatory efficacy in our asthma model did not correlate with coupling to calcium GQ or beta-arrestin or behavioral effects like DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT, even at uh, relatively high doses, did not have any measurable anti-inflammatory effect in our asthma model. And LSD, even at high levels, we were only able to partially rescue those effects. And we thought, well, maybe LSD could be a partial agonist. So we used a related drug called ethylad, which is a full agonist at the signaling pathways. And even at a high dose, we saw no no difference from, from LSD. And then Later, we started looking at, we found some drugs that are almost identical at the receptor. Like if you read DOI and there's another related drug called DOTFM, it just has a substitution at the four position. They're both virtually identical in their pharmacology, but one is fully anti-inflammatory. The other is not. And we've done quantitative proteomic analysis of, of some of these psychedelics and have shown that even though they may, on the surface, look like they're doing the same thing to the receptor, they're producing hugely different responses at the molecular level.
1: So what what is going on?
0: So we think that there's some aspect of functional selectivity that's occurring. For example, DMT, which is NN-dimethyltryptamine, has no anti-inflammatory efficacy, but Psilocybin's active metabolite psilocin, is just the 4-hydroxy-N-methyl-DMT. And just that hydroxy converts it from no activity to very potent and efficacious. And we saw the same thing comparing diisopropyl tryptamine with 4-hydroxy-diisopropyl tryptamine, that if you didn't have that 4-hydroxy there, you lost all anti-inflammatory activity. And so with the SAR that we did with the tryptamines and also with the phenethylamines, I think we've identified a key residue in the orthosteric binding pocket that's engaged by these molecules that twists one of the helices to convert that structure into a conformation that's recruiting anti-inflammatory pathways that when serotonin is in there binding to its residues in the orthosteric, Binding pocket doesn't recruit. And so we've generated now third generation new chemical entities that are designed to directly engage this residue. And fortuitously, when we engage that residue, it looks like we're maintaining the anti inflammatory potency, but we're dialing down by an order of magnitude or more coupling to GQ pathways and beta arrest and recruitment, which underlie the behaviors. So we haven't tested them in behaviors yet, but we think that we're going to be able to separate out the anti-inflammatory effects from the behavioral effects and come up with a 2A agonist that's anti-inflammatory, but not behavioral.
1: And I suppose the treatment paradigm would be completely different from, you know, for a psychiatric disorder, one or two high doses. This I mean, I know how many people were thinking about, would there be more microdosing? Would you need it every day or?
0: So some of the molecules that we've looked at have effects that last for a week or more after a single dose. Um, Some of them last for a few hours to a day. So really, I think it's going to depend upon what the disease is and what the drug is for what the dosing is. But the amount is going to be sub-behavioral. In all of our animal models so far, it's 30, 50, 100 times less than the threshold behavioral dose for a head twitch response is giving us a a very good anti-inflammatory effect. So conceivably, it could be a daily or weekly sub-behavioral dose And the other thing that's really interesting that we've discovered is that they're not immunosuppressants. If you take a healthy animal or a healthy in vitro system and you put in a high dose of drug, looking at IL-6 or IL-1 beta, for example, you're not going to see any repression below baseline. If you put a corticosteroid in, you'll see repression below baseline. So it's really context dependent. If you have a normal animal, these subbehavioral doses of psychedelics aren't really doing anything. They're not compromising the immune system. But as soon as that animal becomes sick, things become kind of out of whack and, and you're getting these immune responses. Then the cells are becoming primed to respond to the psychedelic 2A effect to bring things back down to homeostasis. So and, you know, it's a drug
1: that only works when you need it. Which is, is the dream, isn't it? We can only dream yeah. of that in psychiatry. you know. So you have low dose, no side effects, You've kind of not got unwanted effects if you've got something, you know, you need to take once a week, once
2: every other day. That is quite extraordinary, isn't it? So Charles, with these sub-behavioural doses then, how would they work in some psychiatric conditions? Are you looking specifically at psychiatric conditions that have an inflammatory component? Obviously, the, the classical model of psychedelic psychotherapy therapy relies heavily on the therapy. So are you focusing more just on these inflammatory conditions?
0: Yeah, we've we've just been focusing on the inflammatory conditions. And I think I that think the therapy is an integral part to maximise the effectiveness of the psychedelic therapy, but we've been able to show efficacy, long-lasting efficacy with psilocybin and other psychedelics in uh, rat models going out three months or more in fly models. So I think at its core, there's some biological mechanism that's happening for at least the treatment of, of depression and psychiatric. I think that the therapy component is is critical to maximize but there's some biological aspects that are key and part of that may very well be neuroinflammation because there's there are substantial subpopulations of depressed individuals that do show enhanced biomarkers for inflammation so it's not everybody who has major depression but there are large large percentages that do show biomarkers for this so it could be that low doses might be able to treat inflammation associated with depression or substance use disorder. And that's unfortunately something that we've not had the resources to really investigate yet.
2: (laughs) It would be very, very interesting, though, if these doses could be used in the long term for people with these conditions.
0: Right, right.
1: Is there any indication that will work in people yet?
0: I get all kinds of email from people <laughs> who have read my research and have thanked me. So the only thing I can say is really anecdotal, but there have been no, no controlled trials in humans yet, although I know that there are now several trials looking at psychiatric effects of psychedelics where they are collecting blood specimens for analysis of circulating biomarkers for inflammation. So I think that's on people's radar now to look for. And there was there was one study that came out a month or two ago that showed that psilocybin did not have an anti-inflammatory effect in healthy individuals. Wasn't too surprising to me because of what we see in our healthy animals, there's no effect. You have to have that disease state. So unfortunately, I think the careful screening that they're doing for a lot of these psychiatric disorders, there's not any comorbid disorders. They're fairly healthy with the exception of the psychiatric disorder. So there's not really a population of, say, depressed people who have rheumatoid arthritis that they're able to look at the sample serums for. Those, those studies haven't been done.
1: It would be useful, though, if in some of the, the trials they measured cytokines
0: yeah. And they, they are doing that now. But I think, unfortunately, the number of people in the trials are not, they're not going to have some inflammatory disorder that's going to be producing. It could be something with, like, if, if you have uncontrolled diabetes, if you have severe rheumatoid arthritis, if you have asthma, I think, you know, a lot of those are, are being screened out of the psychiatric clinical populations for now. So, I know moving forward though a lot of investigators that I've talked to they've now just rolled in collecting of these of blood serum to look for inflammatory markers in retrospect but there still needs to be a, pro, a prospective study done yeah. in humans
1: there'd be a subset of patients who have elevated IL6 you'd think of the
0: right patients. you would have to identify those yeah. and but we are hopefully developing some of our new chemical entities that will be specific for certain diseases that don't really have the behavior. So those will really involve kind of a a traditional drug development pipeline, clinical trials, uh, things
1: like that. Are you just developing drugs yourself in your lab?
0: So we have a a drug development program in my laboratory and filed several uh, patents for some of these new molecules that we've developed, yeah.
1: So watch this space? yes, (laughs)
0: yes, <laughs> watch this space.
1: It's so exciting.
0: And I think ultimately the two the two really do feed into one another. You know, as we're understanding mechanisms that they're having on T cells and macrophage cells in the periphery and different diseases, we're also, you know, informing on what could be happening in the brain, for example, with uh, microglia cells in the brain. We had a, I had a visiting fellow from Poland, Dr. Ursula, Kozlowska last summer, who was really interested in, in neuroinflammation and the role of microglia in synapses and how inflammation may change that process. And so she made a lot of headway in sort of getting getting that model up and going. And it really looks like it does make a difference whether or not you have microglia in these cultures or not. And you know, then the question is what happens to the, the synapses with the interaction between microglia uh, psychedelics and something like tnf or lps is there going to be a perfect a protective effect or not so those are some of the directions now that in collaboration with her she's going in that direction so there's i think there's a lot of you know a, a lot of research now going going in the space
1: it is a very exciting time for neuroinflammation isn't it yeah stuff yeah. working on microglia actually we we did some in my lab. It's not straightforward. So she must be a pretty talented mm-hmm. scientist.
0: Yeah, she had a, she was here for six months, and it took her four months to get the system up and going to where she could get data. It's like, ah. Oh. <laughs> Never give up. But I'm like, no, that's really good. That's very complex, yeah. you know, to get it up and going that
1: quickly. That's right. That's uh, really good going. Yeah, we really struggled in my lab. It's very, very tough stuff.
2: I guess it's just really where do you see what, what's the most exciting condition that you think there's this, this hope that these sub-behavioral psychedelics could, could be used to treat in your eyes?
0: Well, if you think about you know the psychiatric population, you have something like 10% of adults in developed countries have or first world countries have depression in any given year. You've got about 12% to have substance use, and there's a lot of comorbidity between that. So all in all, you might have maybe 15 to 20% of the population in any given year that has some psychiatric disorder that could benefit from psychedelic therapy. And that's huge to be able to do that. But if you look at, at, you know, just what happens as we age, the chronic inflammation, you know, my, my neck pain, my back pain, arthritis, you know, diabetes, the, the inflammation that occurs with that, um, asthma, it affects almost two thirds to eighty percent of individuals, some form of chronic inflammatory disease that really there aren't aren't many great therapies for. The the biologic biologics are on the market now. Those are really hot, but there's a lot of side effects associated with those, immunocompromising effects, allergic reactions, they're expensive. Corticosteroids have their their issues. So if we could come up with a drug with very limited side effects that works to bring things back to homeostasis rather than suppress the immune system. So you're not opening up to opportunistic infections. You don't have all these other strange side effects. I think the the potential is there that we could really come up with some disease-modifying medications for I know my father likes to call it the philosopher's stone, good for everything that ails you. But I think the potential is there in the non-psychiatric space. is sort of gone under the radar because it doesn't involve kind of the sexiness of of the behavior. But the, the serotonin 2A receptor is everywhere throughout the body. And to be able to take advantage of it in the ways in novel mechanisms that can treat people without these side effects, I think that's what I would really hope to see in the future is a larger degree of people helped by these types of medications.
1: Yeah, it really is a complete revolution. And we talk about a you know revolution in psychiatry, but in inflammatory disorders as well.
0: Yeah, and it seems like the less drug, the better in a lot of these things that we've looked at. And I'd like to say it sounds too good to be true, but we have found some things that it doesn't work for. So it doesn't doesn't work for everything, but we have found some exciting things that it does work for and it's ex- exploring those indications uh, where there's a new indication that we're exploring now that could be very exciting. We've just got some preliminary data on that. So I think the field is is ripe for yeah. going in in that area. I think it's just not growing as much because it requires, a more careful understanding of pharmacology, of immunology, of getting licenses from from DEA. So at the basic science side of, of psychedelics, yeah. you really don't have that many researchers compared to who's on the clinical side. If you want to do clinical research, you've got psilocybin, which is fairly available if you just get your IRB and necessary improvements. But to do the basic science, it's a, it's a little bit more difficult. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you raise a really good point. In the UK, there's lots of barriers to research because of the Schedule One. It makes it very difficult to do that basic research, that mechanistic research, doesn't it, Joe? Oh, it,
1: yeah, yeah. Same. We have same problems. I think. Yeah. I was
0: fortunate because uh, when I when I got my faculty position, I had that provenance of coming from the Sanders Bush Lab that was working on psychedelics, and so it was an extension of my research, and. The DEA has been has been better in speeding up, you know, granting licenses for research. There are still lots of regulatory barriers for people to get into the field. And at the basic science level, there's still very few compared to the clinical clinical side.
1: Same for us, Charles. And there are many people in this country will not do this research. They haven't got the money. For us, it's a lot of money to get a controlled drugs license. As you say, if you haven't got one, there's huge delays, stigma, bureaucracy. There's a lot of stigma around your researchers as well. They're not keen. But I guess if it's a non-psychedelic 2A agonist, it doesn't come under the same law then?
0: Well, they do in the UK because they do fall under the Analog Act. In the United States, it's a little different. They are not scheduled until they go before the FDA for a new drug approval, and then the DEA will evaluate it. So the new drugs that we're making are legal to use for research purposes. If, however, someone was to be caught with one of them to take for recreational purposes, then they would be arrested. But the drug in and of itself is not scheduled. So we do have a bit more freedom to operate with new chemical entities. Yeah, My father told me when I went on the job market, I wanted to stay in psychedelics. He says you're crazy that's the kiss of death for your career. Nobody cares about them. It's been really difficult. I've had some NIH funding, but to study serotonin receptors, primarily most of my funding has come from private foundations that I've been very fortunate to get funding from private sources, as well as more recently, uh, some biotech, biotech funding. But NIH is still not given out or awarded any basic science research yeah. awards
1: for psychedelics
0: to study psychedelics. Per Same se. in
1: this country, you know. David Nutt had an MRC grant to do the first psilocybin small study, but yeah, a very very few I think government grants, but for brain in general, I think. I had one last question if we've got time. Okay. So my mother-in-law got autoimmune encephalitis, so. Oh it was horrendous she I mean she was lucky to survive she's quite well now but she was really really unwell it was ghastly Do you think for autoimmune disorders
0: So based on some recent models that we we've, we've looked at that we, we just started looking at a few months ago it's encouraging I think that there there may be efficacy for autoimmune disorders as well So that's another So it's In the asthma, we've looked at prevention and rescue. We've looked at TNF Alpha and this this model we're looking at now is is an immune autoimmune disorder in humans that we're that we've got some exciting data on. So if that pans out, it could open the door to using low dose psychedelics in autoimmune
1: disorders. Amazing. So so great talking to you, Charles. We've learned so much, haven't we, Hannah?
2: incredible thank you so much for coming and
1: joining us
0: oh you're welcome my pleasure
1: and it's such an exciting avenue for psychedelics and for the new 2a agonists and you know and really drilling down into the mechanism you know i know there's quite a lot of work to be done there to really identify
2: we can hope to inspire more basic researchers in the uk to to follow your path looking at mechanisms
1: It's great. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with, Charles? Anything else you'd like to tell them?
0: I think it's the future is really positive. My father always thought that he would be long gone and dead by the time the psychedelics were recognized as potential bona fide medicines and and therapies. And over the last few years it's just been really remarkable that they've gone from being stigmatized fry your brain molecules to recognized therapies that are under development for treatment. And it's been a real paradigm shift in society to to recognize that. So I think those of us in the field that have carried the torch through the dark ages are feeling very positive about, it's still kind of the wild west out there, but I think when all the dust settles, we're going to have some new medicines on the market and ultimately be able to alleviate suffering
1: absolutely yeah it is such and you're right for people like your dad who were there kind of at the beginning of the research side uh, to see it all going so well now it, you know and the the enormous potential and kind of now we have the technology you know you've kind of talked to us about the technology of of genetic yeah. research and we really that the advances really in technology and you know the trial design and everything it, it it is really, really pushing it forward now to where it kind of needs to be to, to helping people who desperately need better medicines. Brilliant. Well, with that, positive note, I guess, Hannah, we should we should say goodbye <laughs> to Charles. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this, listeners. We'll put, Charles mentioned a new publication. We'll put all this in the show notes so you'll be able to access that. So just for us both to say
2: Thank you again, Charles.
0: Ah, thank you. Thank you.
1: We'll hope to have you on again, maybe in a couple of years with the drugs you're developing and some data in human trials.
0: Oh, that would be fantastic.
1: <laughs> thank you so much.